So uh, we're going to look at the structure of the House of Lords. This starts on page 203 in McNaughton. And, uh, well, uh, as, as McNaughton says, it is a curious body, uh, really almost unique in the world. I think Lesotho in Africa is the only other country which has anything comparable to the House of Lords. Um, it has evolved, not because of revolution, but evolved gradually over history. And, and because... He repeated, repeated attempts to reform it in order to make it more democratic and, and logical and rational uh, have tended to fail. Its size as such is not regularised by law. There's no upper limit. And you're probably aware that clearly Cameron put 200 members of the Lords in. And of course, this was a kind of a knock-on effect from the removal of all those uh, generally overwhelmingly Tory hereditary peers. Um, and uh, Boris Johnson's added, about, added another 30 or 40 in his relatively short period of time in office. Not all of them exclusively conservative, but it's a way to try and at least change the balance because it is um, effectively a hung parliament in the sense hung house or chamber because uh, no party has overall control. And we have this large block of nearly 200 members of the 800 there who are crossbenchers. So um, the method indeed of appointing its members remains somewhat dubious and unclear. It's supposed to be an independent panel, but there's no doubt it's one of the patronage powers that prime ministers jealously guard. Uh, its structure looks roughly like this. There are 92 members who are hereditary peers. Uh, they're nearly all men who have inherited a title entitled to sit in the Lords. This was the uh, compromise uh, undertaken uh, by the then Conservative leader in the House of Lords, Lord Strathclyde, which caused, caused him his custom his job. William Hague, the then Conservative leader, sacked him uh, because of this compromise he made uh, with with Tony Blair uh, when they uh, reforming the House of Lords early days, uh, 1999 effectively, House of Lords Act. Now when a hereditary peer dies, his or her successor must be elected by all the remaining hereditary peers so you know it's it's, sort of, it's a very strange situation and although these people are not professional politicians in the sense that they have a, a salary they do they do take obviously a significant allowance uh, look for instance the story where the Lords came into play in the last week or two Lord McGuinness uh, who was um, accused and found guilty of making homophobic stadiums uh, homophobic sta- statements open hell stadiums uh, was actually uh, been banned for 15 months from the House of Lords. Uh, his his peer group, literally peers, uh, voted to have him removed by a, a considerable majority. It was 460 to about 23. I'd love to know who those 23 were who were there to defend Lord McGuinness, Ken McGuinness, a uh, senior member of the Ulster Unionist Party. Uh, hereditary peers and the Lords are expected to take the position seriously, attend and vote regularly and take part in committee work. Um, 26 members are still there who are Archbishops and Bishops of the Church of England, including, of course, the two senior bishops, Archbishop of Canterbury and, and of York. This reflects the fact that Anglican Christianity, that version of it, the Church of England, is the established religion in the UK. Uh, you'll see that on the side of a coin, uh, if you look at the Queen's head, and see the letters um, DF. Uh, and FD, sorry, FD, uh, Fidelio Defensor, Defender of the Faith. Um, recently, however, leaders of other religions, um, Chief Rabbi, uh, senior Muslim leaders uh, are often in it, senior members of other churches, Methodist Church are often picked, have also been appointed. The other members of the Lord's, commonly known as life peers, are appointed. Uh, technically, life peers are appointed by the reigning monarch, but this power was given up many years ago. 
Unlike hereditary peers, they cannot pass their title on to their children. It dies with them. Uh, most life peers are nominated by the prime minister and the leaders of the other main parties. In other words, they are political appointments, and this means that they're expected to follow their party's line on most issues. There are also non-political peers appointed on the recommendation of non-government organisations and even members of the public. I'm just waiting for the call. There's a House of Lords Appointments Commission which decides which people shall be appointed and which can also veto unsuitable nominees nominated by the party leaders. Uh, there is no firm constitutional position concerning the balance of party members and lords. In general, there's a convention that parties are able to make nominations roughly in proportion to their strength in the House of Commons. So since 2010, the Conservative Party has made more nominations than the other parties. For 2010, the Labour Party made more nominations than others. But as life peers are appointed for life, it can take many years to change the balance of party strengths in the House of Lords. Um, and obviously, you know, these figures will change over time. Uh, the political makeup of the House of Lords is different to that in the Commons. In particular, it is now uh, always the case that the governing party does not have an overall majority. There are so many non-political members known as crossbenchers. There cannot be a government majority. Um you could say that they hold the balance of power. Um, in, for instance, 2016, the Conservative Party only had 248 out of 808 members. There are front bench spokespersons in the Lords, uh, just as there are in the Commons. The government must have representatives in the Lords as virtually all business goes through both houses. As of course, it's a, it's something to do with taxation or revenue, but all the other ordinary legislation goes through. Like their counterparts in the Commons, front bench peers are expected to be especially loyal to their party leaderships. And just saying that all legislation goes through, we saw until obviously the government withdrew the clauses, the internal market. Bill was an example of that, going from Commons to Lords, back to Commons, back to Lords, the ping pong, if you like. The equivalent of the House of Commons Speaker is the Lord Speaker, who is Lord Fowler, former, many, many years ago under Mrs Thatcher, uh, a, a Conservative uh, minister. In fact, uh, to his credit, uh, the man who in many ways was very bold and strong in developing an education policy to deal with the, with the what was called the plague of the 1980s. If we have COVID, then HIV, AIDS, was that one and he dealt with it in a very responsible manner very much uh, unusual for what you know, might have been a party that would have looked at the whole issue of AIDS uh, in, a, in a kind of a moral through a moral prism anyway as in the commons much of the work of peers takes place in committees these are legislative committees in which peers are allowed to participate to consider legislation and select committees however select committees in the lords are much less significant than those in the commons the work and nature of um Legislative Committees in the Lords, uh, we'll just look at now. So, um, the functions and importance of Parliament. There is no doubt the UK Parliament stands at the centre of the political system. Nevertheless, we should not fall into the trap of believing that it is a genuinely law-making body, as its name suggests it might be. In fact, UK Parliament makes very little law. Uh, while it is true that the law is only legitimate and can only be enforced by it, so you say it's a law-approving body, uh, it passed by the UK Parliament. This does not mean that Parliament makes the laws which it passes. The distinction we'll explore later on. It is also important to distinguish between the rules of the Commons and the House of Lords. They both make up what we call Parliament, but they have different functions. So let's take the functions of the Commons. Again, this could be a 10 marker. Explain two functions of the Commons. First of all, legitimation. 
Uh, this is the UK Parliament's most important constitutional function. It involves the process of passing legislation and improving public finances, what they sometimes call confidence in supply, with supply is what we're talking about here, making it possible for government to have money to do the things it wants to do, like pay the, for the furlough scheme. Uh, as we've seen, the UK Parliament does not develop laws. This is the rule of government. Government is, the, the, if you like, the legislative factory, the law-making factory and proposing factory. The government is elected with a mandate to carry out its manifesto plans. MPs, by contrast, are elected to represent their constituencies. Nevertheless, the government does need a device to make its legislative proposals legitimate. This means that it needs some way of securing the consent of the people. The people cannot be continually assembled to approve legislation. We all got things to do, jobs, you know, uh, hide away in a duvet, you know, walk the dog, whatever it happens to be, uh, or hold a referendum every time a new law is proposed. Uh, we're not Switzerland, for goodness sake. Uh, so Parliament does it for them. That is what is it has been elected to do. If Parliament did not exist, the proposals produced by government would be arbitrary and would lack democratic legitimacy. In this sense, therefore, Parliament is supporting government by granting it legitimacy for what it does. It strengthens government rather than it weakens it. An additional aspect of this function concerns the public finances. Um, monarchs used to uh, seek the approval of commons when contemplating levying new taxes, usually to fight a war. Um, this was essential to gain the consent of those who repay the taxes, the barons, or you know the people. Obviously, uh, in those days, there was no elected parliament, but generally people sort of of, of senior rank, large landholders, etc., who had the ways and means to you know provide that taxation and uh, levy the taxes. Without it, tax collection would be at best difficult. Worst, it might end in armed revolt, and of course, we had an English civil war, uh, partly over that particular issue uh, of how the the monarchy in those days, Charles the First, was spending or misspending uh, the public purse. The modern equivalent is that the House of Commons, this has not been a function of the House of Lords since the 1911 Parliament Act, must approve taxation expenditure by the government every time change is proposed. This process occurs every spring and summer after the Chancellor's Exchequer has announced the annual budget. And of course, that's changed a little bit recently. It is extremely rare in modern times for the Commons to obstruct such proposals, but formal approval is always required. Second function of the House of Commons is legislating. Uh, this is the function of actually passing the laws. While legitimation involves consent, the process of actually passing laws is a formal set of procedures designed to ensure that the legislation is acceptable to both houses and gives them an opportunity to suggest amendments. So first reading, second reading, uh, committee stage, third reading, uh, and then so on. It is described in full, obviously, in, a, in another section. There are occasions when backbench MPs develop their own legislation. This is called private members' legislation. An MP can present a bill to Parliament, but his or her chances of seeing it through as law are very, very small. Um, the, the ballot bill is not so bad. I mean, 20% of that goes through, but overall, through things like the 10-minute rule, uh, you know, the early day motion and things like that, this very small percentage will go through unless it's got government support because the government has many opportunities to thwart such a procedure um it can be filibustered effectively not given enough time these bills are usually discussed on a friday when there's relatively few people in the house of commons uh, there are rare occasions when the government supports a private member's bill, in which case it might pass, but this is unusual. So Parliament and its members do not make law on the whole. 
Okay. Uh, another area, of course, and role of is to make government accountable. This is probably the most important political function of the Parliament, especially the Commons. As with consent, the government can not be continuously accountable to the people. That only occurs at general elections. Instead, it is the Commons that calls government to account on a regular, almost daily basis. The role has a number of aspects. It can take the form of criticising the government. This can occur on any parliamentary occasion, but it usually happens during sessions devoted to questions to the Prime Minister. Not all, all these questions are critical. As we know, there's lots of planted or, or, uh, questions that are, are there to give the Prime Minister an opportunity through a kind of a lobbed question to show off. Um, it can simply refer also to the idea of forcing government to justify its policies and decisions. If a minister knows they must face the Commons, they will carefully be careful to prepare a good case for what they propose to do and what they've just done. Of course, you had Michael Gove last week announcing uh, an agreement, a deal uh, over the Northern Ireland Protocol, and obviously that took more form of questions and answers, mini debate essentially on the issue. But he had to come and explain to Parliament. It's why the Prime Minister of Code Restrictions will regularly go to Parliament to make a statement. Sometimes it seems that this is already leaked to the press or it's made through some kind of uh, TV presentation, but Parliament must be informed. Largely also through departmental select committees and particularly the Public Accounts Committee, members of the Commons have opportunities to investigate the quality of government. In other words, how well we are governed, whether taxpayers' money is being well spent, whether the government is efficient and rational, and whether policy is being well investigated. These committees are often critical of government, and as you know, they produce lots of reports. And even though a majority of those on the committees uh, are of the government side, they do take a sort of a, a largely independent point of view uh, and have developed that reputation. So Jeremy Hunt, chair of the Health Committee, has been critical of certain aspects of a policy that he would have formally carried out himself as Minister or Secretary of State for Health, maybe critical of that department over aspects of um, the, the COVID lockdown and preparations and responses to it. Although Parliament is generally considered to be dominated by government, remember that executive dominant question, the Commons can refuse to pass a piece of legislation. For example, in 2016, the Commons voted against a new law extending legal opening hours for large stores on Sundays, much to the annoyance of, of, of then ministers. Um, voting against government legislation rarely occurs, but the mere threat that it might happen is usually enough to force government to think again. This occurred on March 2016 when the government withdrew a proposal to reduce entitlement to disability benefits in the face of widespread opposition from MPs. On extremely rare occasions, the Commons can remove a government. Uh, this last happened in 1979 when the Labour government of the day was ousted. So it is a pretty unusual one. Another area is scrutiny of legislation. This is one of the functions that the Commons all shares almost equally with the Lords. All backbench MPs are required to serve in legislative committees, uh, which are temporary, of course, and that's one of their weaknesses. These committees examine legislation, often examining every line, uh, often not because of kangaroo clauses, because of closures, guillotine, etc. See whether it can be improved and whether additions or amendments uh, can be made to provide, say, protect interests of minorities. It does not mean the Commons committees have the power to reject legislation altogether. Only the Commons as a whole can do this. The legislative committees are a weak aspect of the work of the Commons. This is largely because they are dominated by the government and its whips. Legislative committees rarely amend a piece of legislation without the approval of government. Uh, we saw how difficult it was even for Sarah Champion uh, to get her uh, amendment into legislation to reduce the number of times uh, from two to one that someone suspected of grooming children online 
could actually face prosecution. This is not to say it is an illusory function. There are occasions when proposals by groups of MPs are accepted by government. And another function, of course, for MPs in the House of Commons is constituency representation. It's widely acknowledged for as a great strength UK political system that every MP represents the interests of his or her constituency. This is a, a neutral, non-partisan role in that an MP is expected to care of the interests of all constituents, no matter for whom they voted. It may involve lobbying a minister whose department might be proposing something that isn't popular in the constituency, maybe wanting to put a, a new road through an area of maybe natural beauty, uh, and obviously constituents and local groups protesting that. It might involve raising the matter on the floor of the House of Commons. For instance, Ed Davey raised a question. Uh, he's a, a, a disabled child, but uh, he raised an issue on behalf of a constituent uh, who was not going to be able to get access to a disability fund to, to purchase a, a particularly modified bicycle. Uh, but he raised that with the Prime Minister. Obviously, he was going to write to the Prime Minister and seek some kind of action on it. And it might also involve joining a local campaign of some kind. So, for instance, with this whole issue of fishing uh, and the EU, clearly those constituencies uh, where MPs, like say in Grimsby, would have a, a significant part of the local economy in fishing, that would be an issue that they'd want to obviously put forward, regardless of how they felt about it. Um, sometimes uh, the interests of constituency may run counter to government policy. This does present a dilemma for MPs. What uh, are they to do if the government policy may cause strong dissent in the constituency? This has occurred, for example, with the, the fracking debate. Uh, obviously, that geological sort of a rule of sort of breaking down, trying to get gas out of uh, out of rocks, uh, that's trapped in rocks, which uh, some environmentalists, some large one environmentalists feel, is clearly dangerous um, in, in many ways in terms of causing things even like earthquakes. Uh, the Conservative government supports fracking, but many constituencies with Conservative MPs feel threatened by fracking. Usually MPs abandon their party loyalty on such occasions and lobby for their constituency. The, the party whips do uh, not like this, but usually allow an MP to put constituency before party allegiance. Similar problems, for instance, uh, arisen with Conservative MPs in the Thames, Thames Valley area over the proposed expansion of an extra runway at Heathrow Airport. It also happens that individual constituents approach their MP for help uh, when they're in dispute with, say, a public body such as the, the tax office uh, over tax or the benefits agency over welfare payments. Indeed, constituency work of this kind uh, takes up much of the average MP's time. It's reckoned that the MPs work about a 70-hour week, and this can take up between 40 and 60% of their time. Most MPs hold regular surgeries, usually on a Friday uh, or at the weekend, when constituents can bring their problems to his or her attention. If MPs feel their constituents have a good case, they will try to put things right on their behalf. This function is often described as the redress of grievances. Um, and then, of course, another area is the representation of interests. MPs do not only represent their narrow concerns of their constituents, they also often pursue sections of society or a particular cause. This is often as a result of their background before they became MPs. For example, members of trade unions will depend, depend, tend to support their former fellow workers, while former business leaders will support their former industry. All pressure groups try to recruit MPs to their cause as it gives them more exposure in Parliament. Organisations such as the Countryside Alliance, Friends of the Earth, the HUK, all enjoy the support of groups of MPs. Uh, in fact, there are even committees uh, in the House of Commons and in Parliament as a whole uh, where those members, and usually goes across party lines, will actually represent causes like that. Furthermore, increasingly, campaign groups 
encourage supporters to write to MPs in large numbers to try and further their cause. Modern examples of this concern opposition to such things as fracking, HS2, that building of the high-speed rail line from London to the Midlands, which is going ahead, uh, Heathrow expansion and banking regulation. MPs also um, have formed themselves into groups to pursue particular interests or cause. Among these have been all party parliamentary groups on such things as ageing, um, betting and gaming, counter-extremism, Islamophobia, motor neuron disease, uh, very much in the news clearly recently with Kevin Sinfield raising well over £2.5 million now, uh, not only on behalf of Rob Burrow, his, his, his former teammate, but also to try and get uh, more research and more parliamentary leverage into it. Uh, race and community, huge one of course, and an era of Black Lives Matter and sex equality, that one clearly ever since the um, uh, Fair Pay Act of 1970, uh, uh, you know, in terms of women being denied fair pay, that's been an ongoing one and, and still is a, is a major area. One that Theresa May actually, to her credit, tried to champion uh, for her limited time as Prime Minister. These groups themselves tend to transcend party allegiance and seek to exert collective pressure in government over key issues. Needless to say, they've had varying degrees of success. The other thing, of course, that MPs are involved in is the national debate. I mean, at the moment, the national debate clearly focused around things like Europe uh, and obviously COVID. From time to time, a great national issue arises which stands above party politics. This might be things to do with terrorism, things like that. More often than not, it's an issue that concerns foreign policy and the use of foreign forces, but it's also involved the signing of foreign treaties. Uh, Need I say more? A word of caution is needed increasingly when an important constitutional change is being proposed, a referendum is held. Such referendums are replacing Parliament as the final decision maker. They are, in other words, exercises in direct democracy other than otherwise and rather than representative democracy, indirect democracy if you like. But when a referendum is not appropriate, as in the case of say an armed conflict, it is Parliament, both houses, that is called to debate the issue and express the national will. Here Parliament is often seen at its best when party allegiances are set aside, when powerful speeches are heard, and when the representatives of the people can be heard above the noise of party conflict. And so there's lots of examples there about debates, for instance, in Syria and chemical weapons, um, debates on whether to trigger Article 50, taking the UK out of the uh, EU that was approved, uh, way back in 1993, about the Maastricht Treaty, um, only approved by a 40-vote majority, and some other examples. 1969, the debate on to abolish capital punishment, and that was uh, abolished by a majority of 158. So I'll just finish off with the functions of the House of Lords. Again, very similar. I think actually probably the only one to highlight is scrutiny and revising the legislation is there. Uh, the one thing is about delaying. One of the things you might consider is the House of Lords is described as a revising chamber. Sometimes that means a delaying chamber. As we've seen, the Lords has only the power to delay a piece of legislation for one year. In effect, when it does this, the Lords is saying to the government, think again, we know we do not have the power to stop it but we have serious reservations about your proposal and want you to reconsider. Remember also this whole thing about the Salisbury Convention as well, that the, the House of Lords, uh, and this was a decision made by the Conservative leader in the House of Lords, Lord Salisbury, recognising the, the, the Labour Party just won a landslide majority in the House of Commons in 1945, yet there out of about six or 700 peers in the House of Lords, only 14 of them were Labour-backed. So this idea of not challenging any government legislation beyond second reading, if it was in their manifesto, uh, became the kind of agreed constitutional principle. But there are examples of the uh, the Parliament Act, uh, you know, defying the government, uh, and then the Parliament Act being applied, which if it's applied by the government, effectively puts that delay. It used to be two years 
uh, up to, to 19, from 1911 to 49, and then it was reduced to one year. But things, for instance, like the War Powers Act of 1991, which allowed the UK to government to prosecute war criminals, even if their offences were committed outside the UK. There was the European uh, Parliamentary Elections Act, established a new what was called closed list system for elections to European Parliament. The Sexual Offences Amendment Act 2000, lowering the age of consent for gay men to 16. Uh, and the Hunting Act of 2004, banning fox hunting with a pack of hounds. In each case, the Lords performed its function of asking the government and the House of Commons to reconsider. But in each case, it was the Commons and the government which prevailed, highlighting, I suppose, clearly that the House of Lords is a relatively weak legislature. Um, but they also scrutinised secondary legislation. Now, a great deal, and I've talked about this to you before, a great deal of legislation emerging from government is actually secondary legislation. Secondary legislation, sometimes called delegated legislation, refers to any lawmaking or changes in the law that are being made by any member of government which do not need to pass through normal parliamentary procedures. These are detailed aspects of law and regulations, but they're very important, as we saw with things like Brexit and COVID, uh, that ministers can make because they have been previously granted the power to do so, according to a parliamentary statute. That wonderful uh, Financial Times video that you watched is the one to go to, uh, where obviously... uh, Boris Johnson was accused of being a little bit like Charles I and had that triptych painting, uh, the famous one of Charles I that Boris's face was uh, sort of in the middle of that. Uh, So the key terms to remember here are scrutiny, secondary legislation and delegated legislation. Uh, Also, of course, the House of Lords is involved in things like uh, national debates, just like the House of Commons. Particularly interesting one in recent years, they have dealt with things such as assisted suicide, control of pornography, treatment of asylum seekers and refugees, stem cell research, and the use of GM or genetically modified crops, the so-called Frankenstein foods. Such debates do not normally result in decisions, but help to inform decision makers, especially as the Lords contain so many experts in these various fields. So you might, and I'll just leave this up here and sort of finish off in a moment, you might want to compare... I don't think you'll be ever asked this, uh, but the powers of the Commons and the House of Lords, uh, and obviously part of this is we're talking about not only the powers of the House of Commons, but the extent uh, the powers, the party powers of of the government, um, and that really covers all of that. So we'll just leave that there, and um, before we move on to the whole issue of legislation, okay.